Well, good morning. I want to first, especially to our friends that are gathered with us online this morning, issue an apology. Pastor Kyle is on vacation this weekend, and so you can see um, things sometimes are a struggle, and I forgot to turn my mic on when I welcomed you this morning. So if you didn't hear me saying good morning and welcome, um, those of us that are here in person could, but online, I apologize to you. I want you to know we're so glad that you are with us this morning, and we're here um, able to sing to Jesus. And um, no matter what the difficulties might be, uh, we will press on uh, with hope uh, because of who he is and what he has done in our lives. You have to realize, or if we look around the world, once again, it seems another week has passed by. And friends, our world is in just as much disarray. There seems to be literally our nation in some senses burning down both literally and figuratively. And what does that all mean? What is happening in our world? And one of the things that I hope that we realize and see in moments of great trial and challenge and pain and suffering is the opportunity, the beautiful opportunity for the church to rise up and to present to the world a hope that it is in desperate need of, for the church to be who we have been called to be, to offer the hope of the gospel, to offer joy to the world where there is death and heartbreak and just uncertainty all around us. And so as we consider our text this morning and speaking into this idea of or this concern of what it should look like, how we as the church can be that type of witness to the world, how we can rise up, how, how we can present something unique something different than all of the rest of the world has to offer, we have to look within ourselves. And so we begin with this question, who are you? Who are we? The world wants us to believe that we are Republican or Democrat, white or black or brown or some other ethnicity, pro-cop, anti-cop, pro-life or pro-choice, Good guys versus bad guys, we want to take a side, ultimately cowboy fans or uninformed. There's division. We want to choose a side. We want to be able to take a side and and decide what it is that we stand for based on the side that we take. And within the body of Christ, we find ourselves so often tempted to take a side and sometimes to take a side against even one another. But let's look at what the Bible says about who we are. What does God's word say about you and I, the people of God? It says that we are redeemed. Isaiah 44, chapter 12. It says that we're sons and daughters. John 1, verse 12. That was Isaiah 44, 22, by the way, not 12. Sorry about that. We have a sure inheritance. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. We spent a lot of time on that text a few months ago. Our future is not in doubt in any way. Philippians 1, 6. We know the end. We know where we're headed and we know the future is bright. And ultimately, we are one. We saw that in Ephesians, Romans 12, verses 4 and 5 highlight that specifically. 
I'd encourage you to write those texts down, to go back and reread those things, because that is what the Bible says about who you and I are. Those other things that divide us, that divide the world, that cause us to take up factions, that's not what defines us ultimately. What defines us is what God's word has to say. But ultimately, sometimes there are things that get in the way of that, aren't there? There are challenges that come. Ultimately, our pride. We want to be right. We want to be on the right side. We are tempted to believe that we have a higher understanding or a higher way than those that are not taking the side that we have. In this season, like in many seasons, the coronavirus, racial tensions in our country, all of these things become political issues and we're divided. And so we've been lured to believe too often that this world is primary. That what happens to us in our lives day to day is the ultimate thing. If we work for good and no one will listen to us because of the divisions that exist within the world, within the body, how much good can we really do? See, the challenge is is that we're living too often as we take up these divisions. We allow these divisions to creep in. We take up the wrong identity. We're living as if this world is our, our home. And we're forgetting who we are because of Jesus. Now, Romans 14 and 15 is speaking, Paul is speaking directly to the church And he is trying to settle down a dispute, ultimately, by the way, a dispute in a sense of racial tension between Jews and Gentiles. There's dispute that has risen up between these two on how they should handle their differing perspectives on what they do, both within the church and in the world. How are they to act? How are they to live with one another? See, the Jewish believers, because of their lineage and their heritage, they are still, many of them, following different rules. They're eating, uh, they're following the, the, the rules and the law of, in terms of um, the, what they eat and how they eat. They're taking different rules as far as the day of the weeks that they esteem. They're following those things, those traditions that they were raised in, that they grew up in. And of course, the Gentiles didn't have those things, and so they're doing different things. And in this particular church, it's believed that the Gentiles were the, the dominant number, And so the Jewish believers were a smaller group of people. See, the weak that is referencing there is if we get to verse 1 of chapter 14 as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, him, but not to quarrel over opinions. It's speaking to the Jews who were practicing the law of eating food and abstaining from various foods. These ceremonial types of laws. But it says there very clearly that as for the one who is weak, as for the one who is different than you, who believes and sees the world differently, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So why is it as we look at this text written to the church, to the body of Christ, to believers, how are we to act? Why is it that we should not find ourselves constantly dividing over these secondary issues? In our church, you hear us sometimes reference, we'll talk about closed-hand or open-handed issues. 
those first of importance and those things that are of secondary importance. The open-handed issues, the secondary issues, they're not critical to the gospel. They don't lead to anyone's salvation. They are beliefs, they are convictions that we practice, but we don't take up division to the point of saying that we would separate from one another. And so here, Paul, in addressing these divisions and talking about how they should act, how we should act, we would be wise to remember that we're not to take up these divisions. We're not to allow these divisions to creep into the church. We shouldn't find ourselves constantly arguing over secondary, non-primary issues. Why? Because, as it says in verse 4, both of us will stand before God who is judge of all. Let's read it again. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may, may eat anything, while the weak person believes he can eat only vegetables. I know all of the children watching and in the room believe they should only eat vegetables. But listen to your parents. No, we don't have to divide over that. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. God himself has welcomed both. And in verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Ultimately, whatever we divide on, wherever we find ourselves taking a position, he's not arguing that we shouldn't have a position at all or that we can't believe something. He's saying that within your convictions on those secondary issues, that we shouldn't argue and we shouldn't divide over those things because ultimately we have been welcomed by God and one day we will stand before God who will be judge. He will settle that issue. Both of us who eat and who don't eat or who find ourselves on other, perhaps in our day and age, what we feel like are more substantial issues, let me just remind you that this was not something that was just about small to them. This, the, we, when we hear dividing over food, we kind of might begin to think in our minds, that sounds a little silly because who would divide over that? But in their day and age, this was a serious, again, these are matters of history and lineage and, and tradition and what they had deep conviction over. And so whatever we might find ourselves having that same deep conviction over, we realize that we're both going to stand before God. He continues and says another reason why we shouldn't argue in verse 6. What does he say? The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Each of us, wherever we might find ourselves, have to believe and trust that the convictions with which we live our lives and that we lead our lives, we're doing our very best to glorify God. Here, they were eating or not eating. They believed in their heart of hearts that this was what they were called to do in order to glorify the Lord. Now, if they were doing these things and we found ourselves doing things that were against or, in a sense, we're trying to detract from the glory of God, now that's a different story. But in this situation, both... The one who eats and the one who doesn't eat. The one who believes a certain way and the one who disagrees with that. Do so to the glory of God. And then finally, why we should not find ourselves constantly arguing with one another is covered in verses 7 through 9. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord and if we die, we die to the Lord. 
So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. Ultimately, what we do, the decisions we make, the way we lead our lives, those positions that we take up that the world would say should divide us, the unity that we display to the world, ultimately that is for the Lord. Everything that happens whether we live or whether we die is in accordance with the Lord's will. If we die, we die to the Lord. If we live, we live to the Lord. And ultimately, what that displays, a confidence that causes us or allows us, in a sense, to not divide over these secondary issues, but to rather display unity. Why does he describe it as those who are weak in the faith or those who are, and and, and these differences? Because ultimately it gives us, it displays a strength of faith that says, I don't have to win this argument with you because I ultimately know who is sovereign over it all. I know the hope that we both have. I know where we are going. So, how is it that we should be thinking if we know that we're called to not constantly be dividing over these things? What are we to do? How should we live? He takes this up in verse 13. Again, looking at two people who would be divided over an issue. Therefore, Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. So we have these differences. We have these positions that we take up and we say this is the way it should be or this is the way it should be. And those things should cause us to divide, but we have decided that we're not going to allow that to happen. We're going to live in unity. We're going to be a display of unity to the world that is so desperate for those things. What are we supposed to do? How are we to think? What guides us in those things? Ultimately, we have to put others ahead of ourselves. Don't pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Do you know what prevents us from putting a stumbling block up? Is that we're so considerate of the other person, so aware of what the other person is thinking and what they're dealing with, that we put their needs, their desires, what they believe ahead of our own. I can do... As Paul would say, all things are permissible, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. Two different translations of that verse. As he says that, he's saying, I can do whatever I desire to do in God's eyes. But what I choose to do, the way I choose to live my life, is to put others first. And this is the gospel. This is the beautiful thing about what we profess to believe. I am no longer... Judged by God Himself. God looks at me in the decisions that I've made and the errors of my ways and all my sinfulness. And because of Christ, because of the good news of the gospel, He doesn't look down any longer and judge me and condemn me. But He covers me. I'm covered with Christ's blood and He welcomes me mercifully and graciously. And so if I have peace with God, how can I not have peace with my brothers and sisters? How can I not look out? in the horizontal plane of life and have peace with one another. This is the good news of the gospel, that we have hope 
If your brother, if it grieves your brother, then it's a problem. Ultimately, as he says in verse 15, what bothers your brother should bother you. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. He says, if you're going to have a meal with your brother who does not eat anything but vegetables, become an expert at cooking vegetarian food because of consideration. Now, y'all know how much I love meat. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a carnivore primarily. I, the, all the other stuff is just sort of secondary filler. But if my brother is, does not want to eat that, or my brother believes something else, I am called to lay down what I would choose to do in service of him because of love. See, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, not eating, not drinking, Democrats or Republicans, righteousness or unrighteousness. No, the kingdom of God is peace that is given through the Holy Spirit. Notice what he says. For if your brother, verse 15 again, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness. The kingdom of God, we are all, those of us who are called Christians, those of us who have been found in Christ, we are called Christians, we are declared righteous, not because of what we have done, but only because of what Christ has done. We have a righteousness that is not our own. The kingdom of God is a peace. We're no longer enemies of God. And if not enemies of God, but his beloved children, how could we make other people like us who have also been declared and given peace with God, how could we not also have peace with them? And the kingdom of God is full of joy. We have joy because the future that we have is undefiled and is being kept for us. So much of what I see causing division in our community, in our world, sometimes even within our church, are these secondary things that have no bearing on the future hope that we have, the security of the believer. The fact that if Jesus died for you and you've put your hope in Christ alone, that future is secure. You can't lose that. And you don't have to worry if someone has a different opinion than you do over some secondary issue that they might be losing theirs. If their hope is in Christ, their hope is in Christ, and Christ has died, rose again once and for all. That future is secure. That is why the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. As the Spirit informs us, we don't have to be bogged down, friends. Yes, we're aware, we see the hurt that exists in our world, but we don't have to be dragged into it. What we can do is we can step into it in love, and we can lay down our lives for others, and we can love freely. So he says in verse 19, or beginning in 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. If you serve Christ, you're good. So then, let us pursue what makes peace and for mutual upbuilding. I love that term, upbuilding. 
We don't say that very often in our world. It's not something that I walk around talking about upbuilding all the time, but it'd be a good word for us to remember. Kids, remember this word, upbuilding. Make that a part of your day. As you go throughout our lives, as we go throughout our lives, let us look around and say, how can I upbuild this person? How can I lift them up? Not judge them, not create more division. They're accepted by God. How could we not accept them? Whatever that division might be. Here's a question we should ask. Who told us it is our job to go around correcting everyone? I don't see any of that in the New Testament. I don't see one another's correction. Tell one another you're wrong. Criticize one another often. Blast one another when a mistake is made. That's not what I see in the New Testament. What I see is upbuilding, lifting one another up. You know whose job it is to go around correcting everyone? The Holy Spirit. It's his work to bring conviction for sin, to bring and lead to repentance for sin. It's what he does. That's not our jobs. And we've somehow taken it upon ourselves too often to believe that it's our responsibility to stand for what is right and bring correction and rebuke. Are there times for that? Sure. But that's not what we should live our lives doing. We are not first culture warriors. We are kingdom warriors. We are called to build the kingdom of God and we have a message to be sent. We have a message to deliver. Now I'm going to confess, I fall prey to this. I have fallen prey to this. Just a couple weeks ago, I saw something and it caught me on the, at the wrong moment. After probably a number of days, I've got all the excuses in the world of situations and burdens on my heart and mind. In that moment, my flesh won. And I sinned. I sinned because I allowed division in my heart that led to division in the way that I spoke and used my words. But thankfully, the gospel is good news. I've got a friend who's a good enough friend that with gentleness and grace, he called me out. He told me I'm an idiot, but he didn't use those words. But that's what needed to be said. He told me I was an idiot in the most loving and kind way that he could. And so I saw my sin, recognized it for what it was, picked up the phone, repented to the one that I had hurt, and I was forgiven. I was forgiven by them, and ultimately I was forgiven by God because Jesus went to the cross for that sin too. That's the good news. Jesus' blood had made a covering for my shame in that moment. So yes, too often we allow our flesh to win and we think that it's our job to go around correcting every mistake that exists in the world. But verse 20, he says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Don't allow what God is doing to be destroyed by your desire to take up some mantle and march into the world declaring that you've got it figured out. You know what's most important to us as Christians? That we don't 
lead someone astray by the way we speak, that we don't cause them to stumble, that we consider others ahead of ourselves. After all, what Paul is addressing here with food, is it your faith in food that saves you? Is it your faith in just fill in the blank with whatever that deepest passion right now that exists in your heart as you consider all the things that are going out in the world? Or ultimately, is it Christ? We know it's Christ. Our faith is not in winning the argument. Our faith is not in the political party being the correct one. No, none of us, I promise you, have been saved by an elephant or a donkey. We have been saved through the blood of Christ. You know, as we think about that issue, and we look at our world and how everything today has been drawn into a political argument, I want us to consider why it is that we have allowed those divisions to creep into our hearts so strongly. Why are we so active politically? Is it because, I would guess, because we believe in this moment, some of us might believe the president is good for our nation. Others might believe he is bad for our nation. But if you believe that he is good for our nation, you might find yourself saying, why is he good? Well, he's good because he's defended constitutional rights. He's things that you value greatly. You believe that he is good because he stood up for religious freedoms. He's done great things to protect the unborn. And so in all these things, as you look at all of these things that he's done, in your estimation, he's done great things for the kingdom and for Christians. And so you believe he is good and you support the things that you believe in. Now, I want you to consider for a moment. Presidents, as we know, have term limits. Think for a moment. Who was president when you came to faith in Christ? Now, I could figure it out, but I can tell you that that person is not on my mind when I think about what Jesus did in my life. I don't think about the policies that he had instituted or not instituted because none of those things had to do with my salvation. And there will one day, by the way, more than likely, be a president who does not do all of the things that you think he should do. Maybe this one is it. Maybe it's the one preceding him. Maybe it's the one that comes after him, him or her. There will be a president that will make, probably, make life much harder for those of us who practice Christianity, who follow Christ to do so freely because ultimately that's just the way the world is. And guess what? Even when that happens, the kingdom of God will continue to be built because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. The kingdom of God will keep moving because the kingdom of God is always being built by Christ. Now consider that the kingdom of God in this very moment, is being built and strengthened and growing and in vibrant ways in communist China and has been for many, many hundreds of years the faith has been building. In the last few months, steeples have been torn down. Christians have been prosecuted. They're now trying to go and rewrite the Bible so that they could allow a state Christianity that would be more palatable to the communist government. 
That's no Christianity at all, by the way, but that's what they're attempting to do. And yet, in spite of all those things, God is still on the move. How? How is he still moving if there is no political protection for his kingdom to be built? It's being built as faithful brothers and sisters in Christ pursue him as the most precious time in their lives is spent together opening God's word and huddled up in basements, sometimes with low light, with a few other believers singing to Jesus. The kingdom of God is being built. So if we are really all about the things that we are about, if we're pro-life and passionate about religious liberties, if we're zealous for the kingdom of God, we can stop trying to argue someone into believing what we believe. And we can display for them a peace, a hopefulness, a gentleness, a Christ-likeness that is actually winsome. Here is what I know personally, and some of you are better than I am at this, but here's what I know. I have never argued someone over to my side. It's never happened. I've never sat and just beat someone up long enough for them to say, you know what? Everything that I believe about my life, I'm changing it. You're right now, Ryan. That just doesn't happen. I'm sorry. I'm not very good at that type of thing, I guess. I don't argue someone. But here's what I also know. I have watched God turn hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, completely transforming the way that people view the world, the way they see their lives, the decisions that they made, turning down and saying no to a bottle, saying no to this sin, saying I'm not going to live this way any longer, walking away, returning to their marriage that they divorced against many years before because the power of God at work in someone one's life leads to real transformation. So if we want to win the argument, let's win the argument of who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords once and for all, forever and ever. Amen. And let him do the work of bringing conviction and change and and, and inspiring something that might be what we would hope the world to be. Let's put our hope in Christ alone. Ultimately, we know that Jesus has shown us the way. He's taught us all we need to know. Flip over to Romans 15 as he continues, Paul talking about this argument. Verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and to not please ourselves, again, not considering ourselves over others. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. There's that upbuilding idea again. Here in verse 3, how did Jesus do this? For Christ did not please himself but as it is written, the reproaches of those who, re- who reproach you fell on me. We who are strong, let us bear with the weak, not to please ourselves, but to serve and to bless our neighbors, to build ne- neighbors, to build them up. Christ didn't win the argument of the political day. He wasn't the Messiah that the people had hoped for that would come in and establish an earthly rule that would say that his way was the correct way and everything would be done according to his plan. No, he went to the cross. He laid down his life to win something that could not be won on earth, an eternal salvation, life for everyone who would believe. So how do we live in this way? I'm going to give you three reminders. Remember our chief purpose. What is the chief end of man? To enjoy God and glorify him forever. 
So let our lives be marked as people who enjoy God, who live to glorify him in all that we do. Next, he said to go and make disciples, Acts 1.8. Go out into the relationships that God has given you and make disciples, not arguing with them over this or that, but make disciples, lead them to faith in Christ that would lead to real and lasting transformation. And third, 1 Peter 3 says that we should be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in us. Do you know what is winsome to a country that is on fire? People who live with hope. People who live with joy. People whose righteousness is not found in all the decisions they make, but is an overflow of Christ at work in them, a Christ-likeness. That is what causes your neighbor to say, I need to know what is going on in their life. Why are they not falling apart? Why are they not at war with everyone like I see everyone else at war? So let's make it our deepest passion to make disciples to know the eternal work of God, the work that will lead not to earthly wins, but to ultimate eternal life. Let us live with such a peace and a hope that causes the world to wonder. And let's live peaceably, peacefully with one another, building one another up in love. I close with this prayer that Paul issued to the Roman church, my prayer for us today. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Lord Jesus, help us to make this our aim. Let us live with this purpose. We thank you for the encouragement and the endurance that you give us. We ask for more of it in this world that seems so broken. We need your spirit to to just be with us, to strengthen us so that we might live in harmony with one another. So we might live as Christ has called us to live. So with one voice, we could glorify you, Lord Jesus. That's what we want to do. Help us to not glorify ourselves to glorify you and you alone. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Y'all stand and sing with me. Great is thy faithfulness Oh God my Father
such good news that he is faithful to us and we are so thankful that you are with us this morning. Um, thank you for gathering. Those of you that are online, we'd ask that you would uh, text if you're a guest with us watching maybe for the first time or haven't ever checked in with us, please text 97000 and text the word visit CCM. So V-I-S-I-T-C-C-M, all one word, to 97000 and uh, we look forward to connecting with you um, soon, somehow in the next couple of weeks. So love you guys and uh, we're going to sign off online. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for the preaching of God's word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sundays at 1030 a.m. at 2950 Cardinal Drive, and we'd love to meet you this coming week. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.